Welcome, and thanks for listening to the New Life Christian Ministries podcast. If you'd like more information about New Life or for more podcasts and other media, go to newlifexn.org. My name is Pastor Brad. I'm the worship arts pastor. It's a great privilege to be able to share the Word of God with you today, especially as we're bringing this series, The Reason for God, to a close today. This is the very last installment of this message, and uh, uh, Pastor Chris will tell you what's coming up a little bit later uh, in the the series, uh, later in the service. But I just thought, uh, you know, it's just an incredible, been an incredible series where we've asked a lot of really difficult questions, and, and actually we've gone right to the Bible, and we've seen what the Bible has to say about those questions, and, uh, and also we, we, uh, we shared with you some of the content from a book called The Reason for God by Timothy Keller, and uh, that book is, is just a great book. I would encourage you to pick it up and read it as you uh, go through it, but we've been, uh, been really just unpacking some really difficult questions like, you know, if there's a good God, why is there suffering, and uh, how could Christianity be the only the only way to heaven or the only true religion. Um, so we've looked at some pretty, pretty hard questions, to be honest with you. Uh, but as we've gone through this series, I, I, I think that I found the reason for God, and I'd like to show that uh, to you today, if you don't mind. Let's, let's take a look at that. There it is. There it is. <laughs> That's Judah Bradley. He's my youngest son, born on March 31st of this year. And uh, he was 20 pounds. No, not 20 pounds. That, oh. <laughs> Woo! Sorry, hun. That would have been horrible. He was, he was 7 pounds, 5 ounces, and he was 20 inches long. So, uh, so there's the reason for God. Any questions? Ha! You guys thought you were done, right? <laughs> Best message ever. I love this church. Um, no, no, I, I can be honest with you. I grew up listening to rap music. I always wanted to do a mic drop. And uh, I never thought I was going to be able to do that. And then this happened, and I thought, that's awesome. Uh, but actually, interestingly enough, throughout this series, we've been asking, you know, is there, is there absolute truth in the world? Is there absolute truth that we can hold on to? Because really, our culture is trying to tell us and sell us a bill of goods on the fact that there's no absolute truth. But I want to ask you a very simple question, and this is based on a a scientific formula right here, okay? You ready? Is this mic going to drop every time? Unless I trick you, the answer is yes, okay? You ready for this thing to levitate? Let's see. It won't. I saw an illusionist last week, and I thought, i got to learn some of his stuff. But I, I, every time, unless I rig this thing up, it's always going to fall. The mic will always fall to the floor. Now, I want to ask you a question. Is that absolute truth? Yes. The mic will always fall to the floor. The basketball will always hit the floor and bounce back up. Um, the, uh, the, you will always fall when you trip. I mean, it's a law. It's called the law of gravity right? And the interesting thing is we, followers of Jesus, Christians, we believe that God created everything and God, by his very nature, has intertwined absolute truth, which science calls laws, into creation, just like the mic will always fall to the floor. And so today, as we wrap this series up, we're going to really look at the the book that teaches us that God created everything and that he has woven absolute truth into the fabric 
of creation. And we're going to ask a very, very important question. And it doesn't matter where you're at on the spiritual spectrum today. You could be exploring Jesus. Um, You could even just be exploring spiritual truth. Or you could be a, a disciple of Jesus and never wrestled with this question. But every one of us in here today, we need to absolutely wrestle, and I really mean that, with this very question. And here it is. Can we trust the Bible and its message? Can we trust the Bible and its message? Can we trust the Bible and its message? And what we're going to do today is we're going to look at really three very clear truths about the Bible um, that, that will help us answer that question. But before we dive into that, let me tell you a little bit about the Bible. The Bible consists of 66 books that was written by different authors. Um, It's actually different separate books that have been brought together that basically tell us this one thing, God's story or his interaction with us, with human history. It tells us God's incredible story. And it's split into two parts, the Old Testament, which is uh, what the, the Jews use primarily for their Bible, and the New Testament, which has been brought together with, uh, with the Old Testament to form our Bible, or the Christian Bible, I should say. And uh, so altogether, 66 books. And in particular, in the New Testament, there are 27 books, four of which are accounts of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection, and then there, there are other books in the New Testament that, in fact, the Apostle Paul wrote 13 of these books, and the, the 13 books that he wrote were actually letters that he had written to churches. You see, after Jesus was resurrected from the dead, uh, the, he launched this thing called the church on the day of Pentecost, and, uh, and this church, just the, the church began to grow, and, and Paul... He had an experience with Jesus where he realized that Jesus was real, he was true, and and, and totally just changed his life. And then Jesus gave Paul a mission, and he said, listen, you need to go and you need to plant these churches, you need to tell people about me, and uh, and that's exactly what Paul did. And Paul, as he planted these churches, he would would plant them, then he would leave, and then he would write a letter and say, you know, listen, I've heard this about you, I think this is great, here's some things you need to work on. And and he wrote 13 letters like that under the, the influence of the Holy Spirit, that we today can actually take and we can apply in our lives as well because God is the one who was speaking and and really um, over Paul as he was writing. Superintended is the word there. And so it's a very, very powerful thing that we have in the New Testament. And that's what the, the Christians believe. But the question still remains, can we trust it? Can we trust that it's true? And Timothy Keller in his book, Reason for God, gives us three very, uh, very key answers. And I, I want to just preface this, these answers with this. Our culture has, has been trying to tell us for a long time that the Gospels in particular are legends. They're legends. In fact, there was a group of people got together in the 1980s uh, called the Jesus uh, Seminar. There was a bunch of scholars, and they used four different colored beads. <laughs> Interesting. The red bead, a pink bead, a gray bead, and a black bead. And what they would do is they would sit in a room like this, and they would open up the scriptures, and, the, and they would, you know, uh, probably open up some of the Greek and all that because they're pretty smart. And, and they would read through, and, and they would say, you know, this, this verse right here, did Jesus say this? And they would put a red bead for, yes, Jesus said this, and they would put a pink, a pink bead for, uh, Jesus said some of that, uh, most of it. They would put a gray bead if Jesus said a little bit of it, and then they would put a black bead if Jesus didn't say any of it. And what they concluded, based on their own assumptions and their own research, is that Jesus actually only said about 20% of what's written down in the Gospels. 
And they have influenced greatly, in fact, incredibly, this mindset of the Bible is, is really just filled with legends and myths. But the incredible thing that we find in the Bible and from the New Testament in particular is that it's impo- it can't be a legend. It can't be a legend. And, f- and here's the first reason why, and this is what Timothy Keller says, and I, I would agree with him in his book. We can trust the Bible because the timing is far too early for the Gospels to be legends. We can trust the Bible because the timing is far too early for the Gospels to be legends. You see, what these scholars, they say is that Jesus only said 20% of what he said, but the rest of it was written down by church leaders who just added stuff in there so that they, would, uh, so that they could have really a, a claim in society. They could have fame, they could have money, they could have fortune. They, they could just basically make it say what they wanted it to say in order to gain them power. That's what the scholars would say. But what Timothy Keller says is that that's, it's not possible. It's just, it, it's just not possible. It's not possible because the Gospels, the timing of the Gospels is far too early for them to be legends. And, and, that, and that's absolutely true because in the, in the New Testament, what we find is that the Apostle Paul wrote his letters within 15 uh, years, really, of Jesus' resurrection. And even the, the latest writing of the Gospels was, was no, no more than 60 years after Jesus' resurrection. And here's the thing about legends. Legends take centuries to develop. Centuries to develop. But the Gospels, everything that we read in the New Testament and the Gospels was all in there within 40 to 60 years after Jesus had been raised from the dead. Now, I want to encourage you, don't take my word for it. Get out Google, get out whatever it is that you research on, and go find out. Go find out if what I'm saying is true, what Timothy Keller is saying is true, and, and dig into that. But the amazing thing is, even the Bible itself says that, that it was written in, in this short period of time because there were eyewitnesses. In fact, the Gospel of Luke starts out with this incredible uh, verse, and Luke writes this down. It's the very first sentence that he writes because it's so important that we understand this. Here's what he says. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all of these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now, the incredible thing about Paul or Luke here is Luke was a doctor. So Luke had to pay close attention to the details because here's the deal. Back then... Doctors didn't have computers, right? In fact, they hardly even had things they could write stuff down on. There were no prescriptions written there. There was nothing. It was all up here, you know, which would have been horrible. Could you imagine going to the pharmacy in that day, right? He said theosoxapine or something. It would have been horrible. So he had to memorize all of this stuff. And what, what Luke did is he went and he actually interviewed eyewitnesses who saw Jesus living, who saw Jesus die, and who saw Jesus raised from the dead. And he wrote down what they said. That's what he wrote. That he has written an orderly account based on eyewitness testimony of what happened. 
And the Apostle Paul actually says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in the first six verses, he tells the story of the gospel, and then he tags this on here, because here's what he wants, and here's what I would want as well for all of us in here today. He says, listen, if you don't believe this, if you can't wrap your mind around this, then I want you to go, and I want you to interview the people who saw this happen, because here's the deal, there are 500 of them who saw Jesus raised from the dead. So go find them in Jerusalem and ask them. That's what he said to a church in Corinth. It was a brand new church, and he was trying to help them correct some teaching. And he said, listen, go, go, don't take my word for it, go and talk to these people who saw Jesus live, die, and raise again. Go talk to them and see what they have to say. So the Gospels, as they were being written and as the New Testament was being written, it was way too early for there to be legends. And, and let, me, let me illustrate it like this. Have you ever been uh, in a group of people where uh, you were with somebody, and I'm going to use fishing as an analogy here, okay? So here we go. If fishing's not your deal, use something else, okay? But let's say you're in a group of, of, of people, and, and you're with a buddy of yours, your best friend who loves to fish, you love to fish, and you've been fishing, and your friend says to your other friends, man, I caught a fish that was this big, right? And you were there, and you noted that fish was this big, okay? What do you do in that moment? What do you do? <laughs> Put your hand up like, um, actually, actually, bro, that's not true. <laughs> you're lying right now. You're going to go to hell for that, you know? <laughs> there is grace available through Jesus. We'll talk about it at the end, okay? So here's the deal, Right? We, there, 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 there would be people who are raising their hands saying, now, actually, Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't, heal the, Jesus didn't heal the blind man, give them his sight. Jesus didn't heal the deaf person, give them their hearing. Jesus didn't heal the dumb person, give them their speech. Jesus didn't raise Lazarus from the dead. Actually, that didn't happen. Actually, Jesus didn't really die on a cross. He just disappeared somewhere. Actually, there was no resurrection from the dead. Actually, you know, Jesus never sent the Holy Spirit. There would have been people, there would have been testimonies, there would have been writings that said, actually, that did not happen. But do you know what happened? There's hardly nothing about that. You can go back and you, you can research and you can try to find it. But what they found is that these eyewitnesses, <laughs> they were telling the truth. Jesus lived. Jesus died. Jesus was raised back to life again. There aren't anybody, any people raising their hand going, actually. So the gospel accounts, the New Testament was way too early for there to be legends because somebody would have raised their hand and said, actually, and they didn't. So that's point number one. Point number two is this. The content is far too counterproductive for the Gospels to be legends. The content is far too productive for the Gospels to be legends. So we can trust the Bible because the content is far too counterproductive uh, for them to be legends. And I want to give you a very specific example. There's a guy in the New Testament. His name's Peter, okay? Some of you know who Peter is. Peter's one of those guys in your life who is very, very enthusiastic. And, uh, but when the rubber hits the, hits the road, it kind of backs off a little bit. And the reason we know that is because the Gospels tell us that. In fact, when Jesus was alive, Peter was with Jesus, and, and Jesus said, I have to go and I have to die. And Peter said, uh-uh, you're not dying under my watch. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to go with you to your death. And, and Jesus turns and looks at Peter, and he says, uh, Peter, actually, you're going to deny me three times before the day that I actually die. 
Peter's like, no, I'm not going to do that. But actually, what we find is in the Gospels, in the accounts, in the eyewitness testimony, we see that Peter denies Jesus three times, and then he runs away. Jesus, or Peter, who was this amazing, you know, talked up hero, trumped up hero, he's going to do all of this. He looks like a fool when he denies Jesus and runs away. And then Jesus dies on the cross. Peter's nowhere to be seen. Really, none of the disciples are anywhere to be seen. Jesus dies, and then he's raised back to life again. And, and an interesting thing is the Gospels give us this account of, of Jesus reinstating Peter. Basically, Jesus came to Peter, and he said to Peter three times, Hey, Peter, do you love me? And Peter's like, Yes, I love you. You know, and he asked him again, and he asked him again, and Peter's probably like, Jesus, I love you so much, but I screwed up so bad. And Jesus, you know what he does? He looks at Peter and he says, then I want you to go and I want you to feed my sheep, which basically means that he was going to really be a key leader in the church. And that's exactly what we find in the book of Acts. In fact, on the day known as Pentecost, when God sent the Holy Spirit to the church and the church was instated, Peter gave the first sermon or the first message and he preached the gospel. He told the people that Jesus came, just as the Old Testament said he was going to come, that he lived a perfect life for them, that he died a death on the cross for them, and that he was raised back to life again for them. And Peter saw it. Peter experienced it. And Peter, who before was triumphant and then failed miserably, was given incredible grace by Jesus to go and accomplish the work that he had been set out to do. And Peter became one of the, really, we call them the heroes of the faith. In fact, the Catholic Church looks back at Peter as being the rock of the church. And so for a guy who looks to be like a hero here, he looks like a pretty big idiot here in the middle. But do you know this, the Bible tells us that? The thing with legends is the hero never looks like an idiot. I don't know if you know that or not. But in legends, the hero, there's a, there's a problem. The hero comes in, solves the problem, and then the hero is kind of glorified even more. That's what happens in legends. This, this gospel account, these, this New Testament, it can't, be, it can't be a legend because there's too much detail like that where people screw up and look like idiots. It just doesn't make any sense. Then the last thing that Timothy Keller says is this. The literary form of the Gospels is too detailed to be legend. The literary form of the Gospels is too, de de too detailed to be legend. And he points out a guy uh, named Richard Buckham, and Richard Buckham talks about a really incredible thing called recollective memory. And uh, I want to read to you how he defines this. Here's what he says. Recollective memory is selective. It fixes on a unique and consequential events. It retains irrelevant detail. It takes the limited vantage point of a participant rather than an omniscient narrator, and it shows, it shows signs of frequent rehearsal. Okay, let, let's look at those five things again. Okay, what is recollective memory? It's selective, number one. It fixes on unique and consequential events. It retains irrelevant detail. It takes the limited vantage point of a participant rather than that of an omniscient narrator, and it shows the sign of frequent rehearsal. That's what recollective memory is. And, and, and Keller points out that we see that in the Gospels. We see recollective memory at work in the Gospels. And, and let me illustrate this from a story in my life. When I was really little, really little, like I, my mom said I was around one year old, 
I went to my grandma Corny's house, and that was her real name, okay? I went to my grandma Corny's house, and I remember, in my mind, I remember sitting in a metal high chair, and I can remember one really specific thing. There was a rust spot down at the bottom of this high chair on the, on the, on the plate of the high chair, and I can remember looking at that, and now that I've had all these years to rehearse this and think through this, I, I think in my mind, I look, I look, it must have been a keyhole or something. I don't know, but, but it was a rust spot. And I remember looking up, and I see my grandma Corny standing at the sink doing something, and then my mind goes blank. I don't remember anything before that. I don't remember anything after that. It is just the weirdest and dumbest memory, to be honest with you. And I don't know why, but there was something about that rust spot on that high chair that I remember. And it just it doesn't make any sense. You know, and somebody who thinks they're really, really smart might be like, that's why your life's jacked up like this. You know, it doesn't make any sense. You know? No, no, it doesn't make any sense. Okay, there, I, I'm, not, I'm not the way I am because of that. It just was something I noticed. I thought, that's weird. But do you know that happens all throughout the New Testament, particularly in the Gospels? In fact, in John chapter 8, the Apostle John wrote down an encounter where Jesus was confronted with the Pharisees bringing a woman who was caught in the act of adultery, and they said to Jesus, hey, Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. She screwed up under Mosaic law, and they were trying to trap him, and they said, you know, what, what should we do with this woman? And Jesus, this just doesn't make any sense, you know, to me at all. Jesus it says he bent down and he wrote in the dust with his finger. Now that would make sense if he wrote down all of the Pharisees' names and all the stuff that they had done wrong or if he had written one word like stop it or, you know, just, just something. It would make sense. But do you know what John tells us he does? He writes in the dirt with his finger. That's it. And do you know why John put that in there? Because John thought that was weird. He hooked on to that. He's like, Jesus, you know, he's confronted with these people and he's about to lay it out, you know, and, and Jesus, he's, man, he's done it every time. He's going to do it again. And, and John's like ready. And then he goes, he's bending down. He's writing in the dirt. <laughs> right? It's just weird, isn't it? Why is that in the gospel? You know, people have theorized that Jesus wrote, you know, um, some word in the dirt that the Pharisees would have been like, oh, you know, and, and, and run away. But, but the reality is we have no idea. It doesn't show up anywhere else in the New Testament. It's only in this account. And the reality is John probably just wrote that down because he was like, man, that's just whack, man. You know, and, and I don't understand. That's what recollective memory does. It fixates on points like that. And there are other accounts in the Gospels where that happens. Just strange, strange details like that. So, the literary form of the gospel doesn't allow it to be a legend. So let's review the, the three things why we can trust the Bible. First, the timing is far too early for the gospels to be legends. Second, the content is far too counterproductive for the gospels to be legends. And third, the literary form of the gospels is too detailed to be legend. So, the world teaches us that the gospels, the New Testament, is just a, you know, the Old Testament is just a book of legends. It didn't really happen. But what the Bible itself says and what surrounding literature says is that actually, yeah, it did happen. It was written down in this short period of time. It's not a legend. So in reality, can we, can we trust the Bible? I believe the answer is yes. 
Absolutely we can. And listen, I'm only skimming the surface here. I want to encourage you like the Apostle Paul encouraged the Corinthian church. Get up off your bottoms, as we say in my house, and go and find out for yourself. Because this is just three kind of, you know, 30,000 foot view points of, of, of testimony. Is the Bible actually true? I would encourage you, get up and go find out for yourself. But the reality is that, that, that Christians believe that absolutely, this is eyewitness accounts of what happened. So if the Bible can be trusted, then we know that what's written in the Bible can be trusted because it is an account of the story of God interacting with us. So let's look briefly at what that story is. We're going to start right at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Here's what it says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. So now we know we can trust this book, we can trust this writing here, these eyewitness accounts. We, we can learn from this book that, you know what, God created this world. And do you know, really, I'm going to be honest with you, inside all of us, we know that. We know there has to be a creator because the mic drops every time. Every time. It's never going to float up into the air, and if it does, we're in trouble. God has woven this, this incredible truth into creation. Paul says we can see it in creation, that there is a creator. And then the apostle John, in the very beginning of his gospel, he looks back to Genesis chapter 1 and even before that, and he tells us an incredible thing about Jesus. And, and something you need to know about John, John was like Jesus' best friend. You know, Jesus hung out with 12 people, the, the Bible says, and then he hung out with three people, and then he really hung out a lot with one person, and that one person was John. So John got kind of this really insider, you know, viewpoint of Jesus, and he got to write down some pretty incredible things. And I want to share what he wrote down. Here's what he says in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot extinguish it. God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world." He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a, from a birth that comes from God. Now, here's an incredible thing about John. John wrote that last sentence knowing that later he was going to write John chapter 3 where Jesus had an interaction with a guy named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus said, hey, Jesus, how do I have eternal life? How can I gain that? What can I do? And Jesus looks at Nicodemus and says, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus is sitting there like, you can't be for real, bro. You know, it, this, this is not possible. It can't happen. And Jesus says, no, not, not, not physically, spiritually. You need to be reborn spiritually. 
In fact, Jesus, when he was in front of a group of people, very large group, also in the Gospel of John, John chapter 6, somebody came up to him and he said, you know, Jesus, how can we have what you're talking about? And Jesus said, there's only one thing, one thing, one thing you need to do. Jesus said, believe. Believe. Stop trying to live this life. Just believe me. Just trust me. Just lean into me. And John, right here in the very beginning of his gospel, says that we have to be reborn. We have to believe Jesus, that he lived a life we couldn't live, died a death we should have died, and was raised again by the power of God, that we might receive his life. As John says, by believing and accepting him, he gives us the right to become children of God. Moving on in verse 14. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unloving, unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. John testified about him when he shouted to the crowds, This is the one I was talking about when I said, Someone is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. From his abundance we have all received one gracious blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one who is himself God is near to the Father's heart, and He has revealed God to us. You see, what John says here is something really incredible. Eyewitness, remember, John, he had the inside track with Jesus. He says, listen, guys, Jesus left heaven because He existed with God before anything was created. He existed with God, with the Holy Spirit, and He came from there to earth, and He became flesh. And He gave us a brand new life. He was filled with grace and truth. And when we believe him, when we accept him, we receive that into our life. John wrote that down for a reason. So that we might know that this message is true. In fact, the Apostle Paul, he wrote uh, to the Corinthian church again, and he said in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse, beginning of verse 7, he said these words, No, the wisdom we speak of is the mystery of God, his plan that was previously hidden, even though he made, he made it for our ultimate glory before the world began. But the rulers of this world have not understood it. If they had, they would not have crucified our glorious Lord. That is what the scriptures mean when they say, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. But it was to us that God revealed these things by his spirit. For his spirit searches out everything and shows us God's deep secrets. And so what Paul is saying here is this, guys, that this Jesus who lived in their eyewitness testimony about him, it was all written down in this book that we might know God's plan for us. It's a deep secret, Paul says, that's revealed to us by his spirit as we read his word, as we understand it. He speaks to our hearts. And he shows us who he is. It's revealed to us. And it's revealed to us in this book. That we might know that God loves us. And that God has a plan for all of us. In fact, the incredible thing that we learn from this, these accounts is this. That, that we can have three things with God. We can have peace with God. We can have purpose in God. And we can accomplish the plans that he's put before us before the foundation of the earth were created. We can have peace with God. We, were, we can have purpose in God. And we have 
God has plans for us to accomplish everything that he's put before us, before the foundations of the earth. And that's what's so incredible because outside of, under, of knowing Jesus, we will never understand that. In fact, what do we do? The Bible actually tells us we chase sex, we chase money, and we chase power. That's what happens when we're trying to find peace and purpose and something to do. All of this doesn't make any sense outside of knowing God. We have to know God. We have to know God through trusting Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. Because then, Paul says, we understand by His Spirit, it is revealed to us that God has given us peace with Him and a purpose and stuff to do that, by the way, you were designed to accomplish. It's a pretty incredible story that we learn from this book in the Bible. And listen, here's the deal. I know there are probably some of you in here today, um, you're still not sure. You're still searching. And listen, that's okay. I'm so excited that you're here because I believe that God wants you to to take this next challenge. And and here it is. If you're just not sure if this is really even true, I want to challenge you to read a chapter of Proverbs every day and a chapter from the Gospel of Mark every day. And if you don't have a Bible, we have one for you out at the Welcome Center. We want to give it to you. Take it. I want to challenge you to read uh, just simply two chapters a day, and I want you to apply it to your life. Okay? I want you to really apply it. Okay? So if you're going to go in, go all in. All right? So, so you're going to apply the truth to your life, and here's what I want you to do. After 30 or 31 days, I want you to ask the question, is my life better now than it was? Is my life better now than it was 30 days ago. Because here's what I believe. I believe even if you'll put into practice one of those chapters, your life will change. Because it's the truth of God, the creator, the designer, teaching us how to live, showing us what it means to be known by him, be loved by him. And I wanna encourage you to step into that. And if your life is better, I want you to at least consider that this book may be true and that God wants to give you peace, has a purpose for you, and has stuff for you to do. I want you to consider that because the incredible thing we learn in this book is that God has existed forever and that in his own relationship with himself, with Jesus and the Holy Spirit, he created all of this. You see, God didn't create all of this so that he could be worshipped. God created all of this so he could share himself with us. In fact, Timothy Keller calls that the dance of God. And what I want to invite all of us in here today to is God's dance. Our take-home point today says this. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit expresses himself in a divine dance that is love. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit expresses himself in a divine dance that is love. And and here's the deal, guys. Today, maybe for the first time, God just wants to let you experience his love. He wants you to come to the dance because he created you. He loves you. He sent his son to die for you in your place. He has stuff for you to do that only you can do. And he's inviting you all of us, to this dance.
today. And I want to just take a minute, and I'm going to pray. And if, if that's you in here today for the very first time, you, you just want God to love you. You want to believe in Jesus. You want to accept him as your Lord and Savior. I want to pray for you today. And I want you to leave here encouraged with hope because there's incredible hope in knowing Jesus both now and forever that you have peace, purpose, and plans. So let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this incredible group of people in here today. And God, I I thank you most of all, though, for Jesus who created all of us. And I pray, God, my prayer is, is that we will grab a hold of your incredible love and that we will allow you to just pour it out onto us this morning, maybe even for the first time. And God, if there are any in here who for the first time are saying, I'm a sinner, I'm messed up, but I love you, God, and, and I know you love me, and I just want to trust you, I pray you would meet them where, where, where they are, God, by your spirit, and I pray you would just confirm your love in them today. And God, for those of us who have trusted you, um, maybe we've gotten off the path a little bit, I pray that today you would show us by your love that, that this is the way we need to go to know you, to trust you, to live out your truth every day because you truly are leading us to a life that is different, that is better, that we were designed for. And so, God, today I pray that you will do do this. Just show us your love in incredible ways. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to share with you the commitment as you go out today. Here's what it says. I will join in God's dance this week. I will join in God's dance this week. As you go out, I want you to remember this. The mic always drops. The mic always drops. There's truth in the world. And that truth is there's a God who loves you and has incredible peace to give you and a purpose and plans for you to accomplish.